You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large for the Washington Post. And today we're continuing our series of conversations about Black women in American history. And today we're talking about Mamie Till Mobley. And I'm joined by Deborah Watts, who is the co-founder of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to tell our audience that they can join the conversation by tweeting comments and questions uh, to our Twitter handle, PostLive. And hopefully I'll be able to get to a couple of your questions. I wanted to start just by underscoring the the trivia, trivial uh, nature of the alleged crime, the alleged offense that Emmett Till committed, which was to whistle at a white woman. Um, I am am so struck by by that, and as so many people have also been struck by the decision. Uh, that Mamie Till Mobley made to present her son in an open casket. I, I'm, I'm curious, can you just talk a little bit about whether or not she understood the magnitude of that decision and the way that it would uh, affect people? I mean, what what made her decide to do that? That's a very good question, Robin. Um, I think it was a moment in time that Mamie took advantage of. And I think with the death of her son, the magnitude of that, the horrific nature of his murder, the brutalized face, body that she witnessed, she wanted the world to bear witness as well. And as she has a, such a strong spiritual foundation and tying it to back to Jesus, if you will, being that she was raised in the church of God in Christ. You know, we had to bear witness to the crucifixion and to the, um, the nature in which our country dealt with him, the nature in which others, non-believers, brutalize Jesus, if you will. And I know that through her spiritual foundation, that was something that she knew that had to happen. Now, did she orchestrate all of it? Did she think ahead of time about that? I don't believe so. But I think it was a moment that she took advantage of this opportunity and said, I, you know, no one would believe me if I told them about this. Others need to bear witness. So I think that's that's what happened. And um, it did galvanize uh, many, you know, it, it birth, gave birth to the to the Emmett Till generation. It gave birth to the civil rights movement um, and pushed things forward, uh, of which I know she was very pleased that that happened. And she had to stand in, um, I guess, in, in her grief and in her pain and also in her pursuit of justice for her son. All of those things came together for her. And I think her spiritual foundation gave a, a wonderful beginning for her to, to make those things happen. 
but that's a great question. I mean, you are um, not just uh, a keeper of this this legacy, but you are also a cousin uh, to Emmett and to um, his and to his mother. Over the course of your your life, I mean, you got to know her well. I mean, can you give us a sense of of what she was like? I mean, I, I'm wondering if she just had this extraordinary sense of purpose and uh, dignity, or if that was something that was, um, you know, just part of growing up during the time that she did? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question also. She, um, you know, was a scholar. She was educated. She was the only child of, of her parents. And she was in a bubble, I would say, I could say, as it relates to love, support, her spiritual foundation, those were things that fortified her. And those are things that run consistent in my family, in terms of the women and men who um, had a lot of love surrounding them, a lot of structure, a lot of rules, the do's and don'ts, and then a purpose around achieving our education. Um, she excelled at that at an early age. And so I think it prepared her uh, to move forward and to do some of the things that, that she did. Um, her resolve uh, came from her mother. Um, just the stoic nature, the elegance um, that she dealt with things, the uh, careful nature of her of her discussion and her her language that she used to try to reach people uh, was very purposeful, but it but it flowed. I think people understood that she had that gift and it flowed and it reached, which was so important for her. So she brought that with her, not knowing that she was going to have to stand in front of thousands of people, not knowing that she was going to have bear wit bear witness. And have others bear witness to uh, her only son's murder and lynching and his body where she opened the casket. Um, but she she rose to the occasion, but she was prepared, but probably not in the way that, you know, mentors prepare someone for the role that she eventually played. But I think her family, our family, uh, with strong spiritual foundation and giving her those opportunities at an early age and her excelling in her education certainly prepared her. You know, one of the things that, um, that you just mentioned, you were talking about the, the Emmett Till generation and the, the fact that um, seeing what had happened to this young child uh, made people stand up who had not stood up before. I mean, were there specific people that stood up or was it simply, you know, groups of people, people from certain parts of society, people from different parts of the culture who uh, decided that they needed to speak and to act? I think it's a combination of those things. You know, the SCLC, SNCC organizations, NAACP certainly rose to the occasion. Um, along with Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, there were a lot of things happening in our country at that time, you know, and I think that it just was that spark that actually caused people to bear witness again, 
to take a look at the horrific nature of what hate looked like in our country and to stand up. I think it, they had enough, you know, it was like enough is enough. And so there were people, there are women, men who stood, you know, um, stood up for their rights. They actually spoke out, they marched. They experienced some horrific things that happened to them from violence, from uh, state-sponsored violence and other things. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a cost that they paid as well. But their sacrifice helped to move things forward right along with Mamie Till Mobley. And so I always honor that Emmett Till generation who are now like in their 80s, late 70s and 80s right now because of the sacrifices that they made. But there are a lot of women uh, there that um, uh, I, you know, there are a couple names of, of, of women right now. I just can't think of them right now, but I will, they'll come back to me. But they're important in our history. And they have spoken out publicly and they have claimed themselves as the Emmett Till generation as well. So we owe them a lot for moving things forward, along with all the other ones that rose to the occasion, men and women and organizations. I mean, um, Mamie Till Mobley helped to mobilize the, um, oh gosh, labor unions, the packing house workers, um, uh, those that were in the, the sleeping car uh, organization. Um, NAACP helped to raise money for those organizations as well, which helped to propel Martin Luther King in his push towards civil rights. Um, she joined other men and women uh, standing in their stead as it related to other lynchings that occurred in our country, standing against the death penalty. So she spread herself, uh, not only just uh, speaking about her son, but she stood in solidarity with others as well. And she was a tool. She was useful to the movement. Um, and a woman of that age and a woman of her statue, um, being a single mother grieving, if you will, uh, she, she's, I, I'm just so in awe of what she was able to do at that time. But I have to say, from a faith perspective, that, that had to come into play to give her that kind of strength and courage, along with her family and along with her loving, strong mother. I do want to share something with you so that mm -hmm. you understand too a little bit about what she was thinking at the time as well, because I don't want to paint this picture that she moved so far beyond her pain that there wasn't grief. Can I read uh, something out of a book that that uh, she wanted people to understand what she was thinking about. Oh, Do you mind? Please. Um, said, so I was sitting in the dining room, feeling sorry for myself. What am I going to do? Almost as soon as I asked that question, the answer came. End it all. Oh, I don't know what possessed me. I really don't have any idea at all. But I got up, I walked over to the window. Well, that window was painted shut. So I went to another window and that led out to a gangway, a stairwell, where I figured no one would find me until my body started to smell. No, that wouldn't do. I looked at the front windows. One was a picture window that didn't open, but then I couldn't jump from those windows on the sides either because children played out front <clears throat> and that would be so traumatic for them. Besides, after I thought about it a little more, I realized something else that was very important. I wasn't wearing any pants. I didn't wear pants back then. 
I was wearing a dress that mama had made for me. Oh, I remember that dress. It was sleeveless, real tight in the waist, a long flared skirt. It was a white dress, white with floral pattern, some kind of design on it. That design was pink. This was one of my favorite dresses. I couldn't stand the thought of jumping in that dress. More important, I couldn't stand the thought that my skirt might fly up. Just then I was thinking about all of that. The phone rang and it was a reporter. He was thinking about doing a follow-up story on me and he wanted to know what I was planning to do. And this is in her book, The Death of Innocence. And I'll just shorten this by saying that she shared with that reporter that she wanted to go back to school. And he was instrumental in helping her to get into uh, Chicago's Teachers College, where she ended up um, matriculating and getting her degree there. But that's just a little bit about what her mindset was. And I'm sure there are other mothers and others who have experienced similar pain that, that Mamie has that have maybe those similar thoughts. But there was something that happened that brought her back. But again, she was thinking about not having any pants on at that time. Well, I mean, I think what you what you just read is really such a, a, a through line with so many of uh, women that we, um, you know, elevate and put on pedestals and point to as heroic, which is that, you know, they felt fear, they felt grief, they felt the, all the confusion and they still pressed forward. I mean, you you brought up um, the the reporter there. I mean, how important was uh, the black media specifically um, in uh, mobilizing um, behind um, uh, Mamie? Yes, I you know I I think that they were very important. You know, from um, Jet Magazine, uh, Johnson Publishing, publishing that. The picture of Emmett and his remains in Jet, um, all the other reporters that ascended on upon Mamie to to carry her story forward. It was a media frenzy, if you will, and it was one of the first media events I think that was connected in with the movement that helped mm -hmm. propel it forward. I mean, it was so strong that even Martin Luther King, one of the one of the um, photojournalist, Dr. Ernest Withers, uh, ended up uh, photographing that picture of Mose Wright in the courtroom where he pointed at uh, J.W. Island and, and um, Roy Bryant. Um, Dr. Ernest Withers created a photojournalist, a book uh, that, that shared a story uh, of the trial. But he eventually also became the photographer for many, but specifically the photographer for Martin Luther King, because they saw how important it was that media could bear witness and could show and demonstrate to the American public what was happening. And not only the American public, but also those across our globe as well. They could, they could see what was happening in America. And it wasn't such uh, a great America as we were uh, claiming to be. I mean, ultimately, the the men who were tried uh, for lynching um, Emmett Till uh, were not found guilty. But um, this brings me to a, a question that came in a bit earlier from Keith Beauchamp, who asks, what would be justice for you and the Till family? 
And um, before you, you answer that, I just also want to make note uh, to the audience that Keith is a filmmaker and producer of the documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till and the upcoming film Till. So what, what would justice look like? Ooh, that's a great question. And you know, that's a, that's a challenging question for most families uh, because first they want their loved ones back. And we know that with the many lynchings and the unjust murders that have occurred across our country, that's not going to happen. And so the next best thing is to make sure that their deaths are not in vain. And that's what Mamie wanted also. So we have to push forward with honoring that. But also that, that truth, uh, justice, and accountability uh, takes place because it is really important that those perpetrators are brought to justice, that they are held and uh, held accountable, culpable, whatever their roles were, that they have pay a price, you know, for the pain that they've caused. Uh, our laws weren't on the books that at that time that could, I'd say, usher in the kind of justice that we needed at that time. But we're still struggling with some of those those laws today that can bring a full accounting and justice to many of those families, uh, those families past and those families present. And hopefully with the work that we're doing, we can bring some sort of accountability and laws in place that'll bring some healing and accountability, uh, strengthen those laws. But that that's it, it's it's a tough question. Uh, and Keith, thank you for asking that. Um, but it is something that we struggle with, but I'm pretty clear that it is accountability. That's the number one thing that we're looking for, and that uh, specifically in Emmett Till's case, uh, it would be uh, charging the known living accomplice, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, uh, culpable in Emmett's kidnapping and murder, and that is possible today, you know, so uh, it's a great question, and uh, justice can be can prevail, and it's in the hands of Mississippi right now. And so sometimes we don't know who to point to or who to um, who to demand, make the proper demands of. And we've tried that with the Department of Justice, and of course, the Department of Justice has said this is not uh, in their jurisdiction, and they recently have closed their investigation. But this is a murder case. And there is no statute of limitations on murder. And so justice for us is full a full accounting, truth, and uh, I would say accountability. Um, it just- Can we it, it, have it, a, um, I'm so 66. sorry. Robin, this is I was going to say that we have a, um, a clip, uh, a very powerful clip of Mamie herself talking about um, sort of, that tension between the, her own grief and what her, the larger story, the larger symbolism of, of her impact of her son's death. I began to ask the Lord, why Emmett? I mean, he was a church going boy. He was a good kid. And uh, it looks, it seemed to me that he had been punished for this, uh, just unreasonably punished. And the Lord began to talk to me in a booming voice. They were not words. I didn't understand a single word, but I knew everything that was being said. It was like it was a 
the roar of thunder, but I could understand what was being said. And the thing that the Lord said to me was, Emmett did not belong to you. You should be grateful to have been able to keep him for the short time he was on the earth. But Emmett was mine. I sent him here to do a job, and Emmett has done that job well. The Lord told me, he said, I've taken one, but I will give you thousands. I mean, Emmett would have been 81 years old this year. And as we think about his place in, in history, I'm curious how you have been able to sort of process the importance of that history, uh, the fact that that is in many ways unfinished history, and um, the tension that now exists uh, for some people in not wanting to grapple with difficult, uh, uncomfortable history. Yes, well, um, I have to say, right along with many others, that uh, that history is American history. And so we cannot leave out a significant piece of it in order to share uh, the truth about what's happened um, in America. If we're going to move forward, we have to deal with uh, the true nature of, of what we've done. and. If, if we can't deal with that, we're not going to ever move forward. And so I know that the clock is turning back in some instances. And I know that that is not where any African-American wants to go or a person of color wants to go. And so with that, yes, that tension is going to exist because there is going to be resistance to that. And so I would say, you know, our country's changing. We better just pull up, uh, grow up and show up in places that, and move over, if you will, you know, where um, we can become better. We can become a better country by embracing everything that we are. You know, I wrote a book in, in 1998 called 101 Ways to Know You're Black in Corporate America. And one of those, uh, I guess the purpose of that was to try to remove the veil, you know, remove this sense that, um, Things are happening there people weren't talking about. And so just like with Mamie and opening that casket, um, mm -hmm. it has opened the door for us to have these meaningful discussions around what's happening and the truth. And so American history is something we need to embrace. We need to understand all of it. We need to understand the contributions of African-Americans and other people of color to this country. We need to embrace it. And we need to understand how important it is for us to move forward instead of resisting that kind of progress, looking at it as this wonderful value proposition for us to be great and to move into those spaces that are those claims that we said we are. But there's a lot of pain. There's a lot that we need to own up to. And until we do that, I just, I just don't see us moving forward. I'm going to continue to remind us of particularly the story of Emmett and those that even came before Emmett, those presently with this through line that we currently see um, of other cases and modern day lynching that is occurring. And also looking at laws that need to be in place to strengthen 
the kind of, 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 I would say, protection for people that are experiencing these things today. So we need to continue to teach. We need to continue to share our own stories, own our own legacy, and make sure that our children understand that. So if it's not taught in schools, make sure that our children embrace uh, who they are and who America really is. And we shouldn't fear it. It should be a part of something that helps us to propel ourselves forward. I mean, you've made a, a very conscious decision to uh, con- to highlight that um, through line from Emmett Till to um, the justice that uh, the family of, of George Floyd was seeking. Um, and I'm thinking that you're in Minneapolis now and there's been, you know, another um, uh, shooting. And I, I'm wondering why is it important to you to make sure that the threat isn't lost, that we that you, the connection continues to be made between 2022 and um, uh, and our history. Ooh, I think it, you know I'm I'm um, raw right now with emotions around uh, the uh, Amir Locke family because I know them. And uh, they're from my hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, the mother is. And so we go way back. And so this is a very emotional time for many of us, uh, not only in Minnesota, but across this country. And I use this term and people, uh, they kind of uh, are offended by it, but I call Minnesota, Mississippi, because we're not far removed from the kind of disparities, both economically, from an educational perspective, and then also these modern-day lynchings that are occurring. Um, And so it's important that we make those connections from the past to the present and the future so that we don't repeat the kind of ugly parts of our past history. We, you know, created something called the Never Again Movement and Pledge. Um, We try to honor Emmett's birthday on, on July 25th. We honor and remember his death on August 28th. And we try to make those connections uh, standing in solidarity with the other families as well, because it's important that our children and our future, that we don't experience what we've experienced in the past. So I think it's important for all of us to figure out where we are in part of that through line and to do whatever we can, whether it's at home with our children, in our schools, Uh, to resist the resistance and the changing of the narrative of our history. Uh, Resist that because that is a part of who we are. And I don't think we're very proud of it. That's why we want to hide it. But if we are not proud of it, we have the opportunity to change it. But it's so important for us to get in where we fit in to make sure that whether we're politicians, whether in faith-based communities, mothers, uh, that we are doing our part. Uh, enough is enough. Um, Mamie told Mobley, open that casket so that we could make a change. That was a sacrifice. And these sacrifices are going on much too long. We've waited 66 years for justice. And I think it's important for us to connect our story and our journey with the mothers that are beginning this journey. This is a club uh, that no one wants to belong to. It's a journey that no one wants to 
uh, take on. Uh, but we do take it on because we don't want to repeat it. Have we, have we gotten any better at uh, bearing witness? At some point, I think we were. I think we are closing um, the opportunity to bear witness. We are resisting from an education perspective what the true nature of what America is. Uh, we're stumping our opportunity to, to achieve and to be better and to be greater. Um, I think we are seeing the clock turn back, unfortunately. And many of us that have been in, you know, whether it's in corporate America or working on diversity and inclusion or working in the civil rights movement, we're, we're, we're worried, you know, that things are, are, are not moving forward. Um, voting rights, you know, blocking uh, part of democracy that people sacrifice uh, to participate in. Uh, so something's not right. And we need to call it. We need to say what it is. And we need to stand up. And I. You know, we ask for allies, but I ask for accomplices. You know, I ask for people to join in on this fight. Allyship, you know, you, you know, and, and some of us, even some of my family members, you know, they are so emotionally charged by just the recent uh, women of the movement that they can't, couldn't watch it. But we've got to bear witness in order to affect change. So, um I, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I wish I had a better answer for you, but uh, I think we're seeing the wheels turn back on this clock. And I don't think we're going to like what happens as a result of it. We're not going back to slavery. Thank you. We're not, we're not going back to uh, the kind of racism that we've experienced in the past. So there is going to be resistance. We are going to do it. Women are going to rise to the occasion. Youth are rising to the occasion. They're marching right now. They're walking out of schools right now because of the, the murder and the killing, the senseless killing of Amir Locke. So um, you need to just join in, join in to make America greater and to make America great because uh, right now we're, we're going backwards. Well, I'm afraid that we're going to have to leave it there, but I do want to share um, a very lovely tweet uh, that says, so proud of you, mom. So your daughter's watching. <laughs> I love them. And, <laughs> I, I love think them. that was, yeah. So um, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.